Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today we're thinking about how some people must still work to claim what's rightfully theirs. The Atlanta Ballet has a new short film that follows a black man navigating one day in his life. We'll hear from choreographer Claudia Schreier and dancer Keith Reeves about creating movement to convey the struggle of daily existence. Afrolatia refers to the community of people with African-American heritage who are native to or live in the Appalachian Mountains. Later in the program, Chris Aluka Berry will tell us about documenting the life of Afrolations in his photographs on view now along the Georgia Fence, a public art exhibition on the Atlanta Beltline's West Side Trail. First, a penny for your thoughts? The Atlanta Opera is offering three. The Three-Penny Opera by Kurt Weil is in the spring lineup along with The Three-Penny Carmen, a newly imagined production of Bizet's masterwork. The Atlanta Opera Artistic Director Tomers Vuloon will direct both productions. He joins us now with John Ludwig, the Artistic Director of the Center for Puppetry Arts. Welcome back to City Lights. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you, Lois. Always a pleasure. The Atlanta Opera's Molly Blank Big Tent series returns for spring, this time on the grounds of Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. Tamar, would you give us an overview of these two new world premiere adaptations? Yeah, I'll be happy to, Lois. So those are some of the most beloved operas in the repertoire. And uh, when we started planning them in late summer, early fall, our greatest challenge was obviously not knowing whether we will be able to do full productions due to COVID protocols and what will be possible, if at all. And so we have developed those very strict ideas of how we can avoid 
Contagion, along with Carlos Del Rio and his team from Emory. This this guy is, is one of the greatest gifts to Atlanta and specifically the art community in Atlanta. Uh, he is a board member of the Atlanta Symphony. He's, he's working very closely with the symphony as well. He's been working with us on devising protocols that will allow us to safely perform from our staff to our performers, to our orchestra and the audience. And uh, we came up with those two pieces that we had to take, deconstruct and reconstruct in a very exciting way that will strip down the grand opera elements from them. So in other words, during COVID, it's impossible to do shows that last three hours with a big orchestra, with an ensemble of 60 people on stage, but it is possible to do other works that are just as exciting. And the question that we all had was, how do you take Carmen and Three Penny Opera and tell them in a way that will be safe and creative and that will work during COVID? And we came up with a bunch of answers. And I think that a part of this discussion will be to explore what those solutions are. Both of these operas address capitalism and class inequities. Why do these works seem especially topical? Yeah, both those pieces are about marginalized societies, about uh, sects of the population that are being taken advantage of. It's very blatant in Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill that were very influenced by Marxism and by the idea of how much they hated capitalism and how they felt that it creates abuse of certain weaker parts of societies. Same thing goes for Carmen, which was originally about the marginalized communities of the gypsies in the time. But recently I had a conversation with the president of the Kurt Weill Foundation, and he said something that really stuck with me. And he said, you know, everybody loves to talk about the philosophical, intellectual reasons of why Three Penny Opera is such a masterpiece. There's all those smart things that we could say about capitalism, Marxism, et cetera, et cetera. But honestly, the reason that this was such a hit in 1928 is because it was such a fun evening in the theater. The music is catchy. The audience laughed. It was fun. It was an escapist way from the woes of the time period. And the same goes for Carmen. So we can talk a lot about the intellectual part of it, but the bottom line is that those are some of the most beloved, entertaining, catchy pieces with amazing music that were ever written. And that's the reason why they're such a staple of the repertoire. Oh, yes. And for all of the philosophy and theory and intellectualizing of Brecht, because he did believe theater should serve as a way to bring about social and political change. Fun, or what he called Spaß, was an important part of it. He wanted the audience to laugh and people to enjoy. How does the Atlanta Opera's production of the Three Penny Opera emphasize those ideas? Well, I can't wait to hear the thoughts of my colleague, the brilliant John Ludwig. Uh, but I, I'll just start by saying that Three Penny Opera is one of the most joyous periods of my life to come up with this concept and with the creation along with my colleagues on this. It involves collaboration on a monumental level with many people that I love working with, from the Center of Puppetry Arts that is doing the puppets and operating them 
to my colleague Tom Key, who is starring in this show as the narrator, Bertolt Brecht. And in our version, it's Mr. Rogers that is telling the story. And we'll, we'll talk about <laughs> that, I'm sure, in a second. But it, it is um, an escapist way, a completely surreal way of telling that story. And due to COVID-19 restrictions, we found ourselves needing to take the piece and make it shorter from three hours to 90 minutes to reduce the scale, not only in terms of the time that it lasts, but also in terms of the forces that are required. So instead of having four different ensembles that will relay the different societies in Three Penny Opera, we have a group of thugs, a group of policemen, a group of sex workers and a group of beggars. We couldn't have dozens of people doing that. So the solution was to have the puppets as those deprived parts of societies. And that's where the Center of Puppetry Arts come into play because they created those four groups. And I would just pass it on to, to John to talk a little more about that. Please, John, tell us about the hand puppets you helped create for these shows. Yes. Uh, when Tomer approached me a little while back and had this concept of these different groups and they were puppets and it made total sense due to, you know, instead of there being 30 puppeteers on stage or 30 actors, we can do it with six. It, it's like the chorus in a way, the, the beggars and the thieves and the others. And it was a challenge because uh, we wanted to create this density of visual representation of, of these gangs, these groups. Jason Hines, who's just a brilliant, brilliant puppet designer and genius, and he, he's like a Leonardo da Vinci, a uh, man of many talents, came up with this freestanding puppet so that they can be in the scene, but not necessarily manipulated, but they added the crowd scenes. Again, uh, going back to the COVID restrictions, it, it just when Tomer told me about it, I said, I can see this, I can see it, which is kind of my gold standard of getting involved in a project, if I can see it. Well, I don't know much about the history of puppetry in Germany, but I have the impression that it is a very highly respected art form with a long tradition. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the German scene is vibrant and and it's always been controversial and very heady. But then they also have their fun. They have their Casper, who's uh, a figure sort of like Punch. So it has its silly side as well as the very kind of profound work that the German artists have, have always done. How do the performers, the singers, that is, singers, actors, interact with the puppets in the show? What role do they play? Each group has a singer or a character who's in charge of the group. Like the beggars, it's Mr. Peachum. He's kind of the head. And with the sex workers, it's, it's Jenny and also Mrs. Peachum. The cops, it's Tiger Brown. So they each have an, a human size bigger than human size because they have these big heads which are amazing masks that they wear it's traditional in puppet theater the more important the character it is the bigger it is and the crowds which are the puppets are smaller so they have this visual representation that's the big singers and then the little puppets and some of them are a very good relationship there's kind of an abusive relationship somebody's in charge 
and you know, it's this hierarchy again, going back to the whole message of the play of the disenfranchisement. And in Carmen, do those puppets smoke cigarettes? <laughs> well, we're not in Carmen, I think. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, and there would be an interesting challenge too. <laughs> there, there would be an interesting challenge, but it, just to add to what John was saying is that we are working with this young designer, costume designer, Eric Teague. And, you know, I think the word genius is being thrown around too often, in my opinion, but Eric is a genius. And Jason Hines is just as a genius. And what Eric did is that he his greatest challenge was how do you take the world of puppetry and link it to flesh and blood singers? Mm -hmm. And his solution was so imaginative because it did not only provide the aesthetic link, those big heads that are being put on the body of the singer that aesthetically make them look like a huge puppet, but it was also a a practical solution to adding an added layer of safety. So along with Carlos de Rio, we came up with this principle that when they put on those heads on, which is another layer of protection during COVID, they're simply more safe. Ah. Now, it really, it all comes together dramaturgically in the world of Bertolt Brecht, which was all about alienation. I mean, the whole idea of Brecht is to remind the audience that they're watching something that is on stage to remind them of their own existence, to even poke fun of them for feeling sentimental at the time. And that idea of those big heads and of puppetry really works with the elements of alienation. Now, one more thing, and I mentioned it briefly, is Mr. Rogers. So if you take the idea of Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weil working together, there is something so unique about that collaboration because Brecht was such a cynic and he told such harsh truths about our own humanity, some difficult things about, uh, about exploitation and about capitalism, uh, about societies that are marginalized. And then in come Mr. Kurt Weil, and he puts it all into this package that is absolutely seductive, catchy tunes. You can't resist how beautiful the music is. And we try to find an equivalent that is pop culture appropriate. And what came to our mind is Mr. Rogers, who tells the most difficult truths to us and to our children. Yet he's able to tell those truths in the most disarming and sweet way. I have two little girls, five and two. They're addicted to Daniel Tiger and Mr. Rogers. And so bringing in the idea of Mr. Rogers, who, by the way, was obsessed with both puppets and opera. He wrote a few operas. Yes. Bringing him into the fold and having Tom Key, who is just as iconic in Atlanta as Mr. Rogers is, is like a, a great moment of kismet for us. You mentioned the music and Kurt Weill was this brilliant tune master. I mean, in the category with Schubert or Cole Porter in the 20th century, the most popular song from Three Penny Opera is Mac the Knife. This wonderfully upbeat melody to lyrics about a serial killer. Why did Vile write this sprightly music for such a grim subject? Well, it goes into the quote from the president of the Kurt Weill Foundation, and that is, you can't just hit the audience on the head with harsh truths without seducing them. In order for people to listen to you, 
you got to figure out a way to tell stories in a way that will attract them. And back to Kurt Weil, he said something, uh, and I, I mentioned it a lot this season. He said something that was the inspiration for our whole season. And early on, when he was just a young man, I think it was in 1928 that he said that, uh, he said, if the boundaries of opera cannot accommodate the theater of the time, the Zeittheater, then those boundaries must be broken. And I find that today, almost 100 years later, to be so true. If the boundaries of opera right now cannot accommodate the theater of the time, we need to break those boundaries. That's exactly why we did operas in a circus tent. And that's exactly why Mac the Knife, that very popular piece, started both shows in our fall season. Because the spirit of Kurt Weil is the inspiration for this whole season. Tomer, what can you tell us about the upcoming concerts? So those are really, really fun events that are headed by some of our company of players. We also did this fall three concerts like those in the tent. This festival, we are doing the sequel to our Crossroads concert, the country music meet opera concert headed by Mike Mays and Meg Marino, who's singing in our Carmen, along with other special guests. That's our first concert. Our second concert is an evening of Broadway tunes with some great singers from Jay Hunter Morris to Kelly Caduce. And our third concert is a unity concert featuring Morris Robinson, the great bass. And it's featuring the incredible voices of Black singers in Atlanta and specifically in our company of players. A company of players include quite a few Black singers. And Morris, of course, is a part of our company of players. We are performing this uh, in a concert under the big tent. And then the next day, we're taking it to True Colors as a second performance. It's a big collaboration with that theater company. And we're super excited about those three concerts. Congratulations once again on being such a trailblazer. I know Susan Booth has said that you and the Atlanta Opera deserve more than a tip of the hat for her Under the Tent series with the Alliance, which opens soon. John Ludwig, you are an institution. It's always a joy. Thank you so very much. A pleasure. It's our pleasure. Thank you, Lois. Atlanta Opera Artistic Director Tomers Vuloon and John Ludwig, the Artistic Director for the Center for Puppetry Arts. The Atlanta Opera's Molly Blank Big Tent Series returns April 15th with the Three Penny Carmen and the Three Penny Opera performed in rep through May 9th on the grounds of the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. 
And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Force of Habit is the name of a new short film dedicated to black people for whom daily existence is survival. The work features Keith J. Reeves of the Atlanta Ballet, performing choreography by Claudia Schreier. They're with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. Would you give us a synopsis of Force of Habit, Claudia? Sure. Force of Habit is about navigating space in the world as a Black person and about the need to steel oneself against seemingly innocuous experiences and daily interactions. Um, The film follows a lone Black man as he begins his day, and we watch him as he strengthens himself and adds layers to ultimately have the courage, security, and the confidence to walk through the world um, knowing that obstacles are everywhere. And so there are there is stress and anxiety, even in what appears to be the most simple of moments. Um, and you know, the point is that this is any day and every day. Uh, and that for what many of us, you know, what might be a simple decision um, for others can be much more complicated depending on how you look. I realize this is very abstract. What you do is very abstract. Can you bring us into your process of designing the narrative of force of habit through movement? Absolutely. You know, well, force of habit ultimately came about in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and last summer's protests. And it took me a long time to process and reflect on how I wanted to respond to you know, my internal turmoil and the external t- turmoil of these times. And I also knew that in creating a project and a film that responded in some way, I wanted to make sure that the film's artists and collaborators reflected the breadth of voices that our project aims to represent. Um, and so in creating this film, um, I worked closely with the director, Adam Barish, who's also my husband, And we um, wanted to find a way to, as you said, somewhat abstractly, um, but also very pointedly speak to these micro interactions that are perhaps not quite as uh, in your face about the violence that is so pervasive and and so tragic, Um, but perhaps more for this, about the microaggressions and the microaggressions of what is otherwise so routine. Um, in one's day and how those otherwise invisible interactions can completely overcome and overwhelm a person. Yeah, there are moments when the character Keith, I, I, I don't know, do I call him Keith or your protagonist? He's, he is he is the man. Yeah, he is. He is, our, <laughs> he is exactly. He is the protagonist and he is our man. 
Okay. There are moments when pedestrians accidentally brush against his shoulder walking past him. There's one where a pedestrian actually seems to shove him out of the way. And there's another moment where Keith's movement is just so elegant and beautiful, and yet he's unnoticed by people who are gathering or passing nearby. Was that part of your statement? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, and thank you for, um, for, for noticing those moments. And, and I think that the subtlety of the interactions was something that we focused clearly on. And, and, and Keith can speak to how detailed some of these motions were. And, and you know, we, we wanted the film to feel like it had no organic natural flow, but everything down, every single beat of the film is choreographed and the way he grabs the, the vitamin bottle, that's a way of, of stealing himself and strengthening himself against the world. The way he grabs the, uh, the towel, the way he does his um, push-ups and, and pull-ups in the morning, the way in which he is either, he, he needs to make space for others versus others making space for him. That, that's all uh, baked into the, the narrative of the piece. The music, Duke Ellington's single petal of a rose, is crucial to the emotional story told through the performance. Why did you choose that piece? I really love the single petal of a rose. You know, it felt appropriate to use music that was emblematic of the rich cultural history of Black contributions to the American sound. And you can certainly make the case that that was the most influential Black musician uh, in American history. His musical form of expression is jazz, which is Black music, of course. And this piece in particular has such a rich, somber quality to it. And as soon as I heard it, which um, you know was actually around the time of the protests last summer, I just knew that this is what it needed to be. It felt like it was... It, it, the, the film felt like it needed to be rooted in, in this piece. The specific recording that we're using, it's an amazing rendition by a very talented pianist named Camilla Arku, um, who's also um, a black woman. And um, it just, I felt so deeply connected to this, this work that I, I, I felt compelled that it needed to be shaped around it. I'm wondering about how this music resonated with you. Is there any connection to the songs image of a rose petal falling and some of the gestures you perform? Um, I love that you ask that. I think when Keith and I were talking um, even months ago about what this work represented and what it could mean um, from the, you know, the deeply personal and the, un- the unveiling of oneself and the petals falling away and what that could represent to the, you know, the more macro representation of, of what the rose could be. I mean, yes, it is. It is whatever you see in it. 
And, um, and I love that you, that you asked that. Keith, what drew you to this project? Well, I like recently worked with Claudia at Atlanta Ballet last season during our September rep show. And it was like such an honor to work with an African-American choreographer and somebody on her level. So it was like really cool to get to meet her and get to be a part of her collaborative effort with like a group and just her as a choreographer and just seeing her process. But I mean, like, I was just excited to work on anything right now during the time that we're in, especially when she told me the storyline behind the idea of the video for the short film. There seemed to be many gestures in the performance that suggest pulling or being drawn along. What did these movements mean to you? For me, especially like as a Black man, the history behind my people in this country and how we as a people have been like pulled along on this weird journey with America and almost like used in a way and not really shown respect behind like all the things that our people have done for the has done for this company and just other things so I feel like it is an idea of like being pulled and pushed between two ideas especially as a black person because there's so many things in pop culture and um and in life that's confusing and really distracts you from who you are as a Black person. So I feel like doing these small gestures and like the idea of me being pushed or like not being seen is sometimes what African Americans go through on a daily basis. And are there ways in which some of the themes of force of habit relate to your experience as a Black dancer in a historically white dominated medium that being classical ballet oh of course and just everyday life like i'm six two and sometimes like i get weird stares when i'm walking somewhere and there's like a certain idea of who color base wise should be there i don't know i've been through i mean you can ask any black person they feel like marginalized or used or not being used genuinely sometimes. I feel like history speaks for itself. And we all as a people have definitely gone through all of those things that Claudia has shown in this video. I mean, I haven't really seen a dance film really made like this where it is really talking about the Black experience presently right now. So I feel like she did a great job with that imagery. The imagery is gorgeous. And I have to say, I wondered if you actually descend the staircase from your apartment <laughs> in that elegant way you descend <laughs> in this day. <laughs> is, that the, is that the first time you've done that? 
Oh no! I'm slipping <laughs> down the stairs. <laughs> I was gonna say, you know, we we create before Adam and I were able to arrive in Atlanta to finalize and film the piece. We created and rehearsed a large part of this online, like virtually on Zoom. And Keith was so generous with his time and his space. And we would, you know, set the camera at the base of his stairway in his actual apartment building. And he'd run up and down. And, and that's how we rehearsed for a long time was him going up and down his own stairwell. So, you know, if he wasn't doing it before, <laughs> he can do it now. All I can say is what lucky neighbors you have. <laughs> what was it like to interact with the structures of this city in this intimate way? I'm choreographer in residence at Atlanta Ballet, but I'm usually based in New York and have been staying in Chattanooga and Tennessee. So I'm a little bit all over the place. So to be able to get to know the city better, to get to know Atlanta better through creating the film has been quite a gift. And, you know, Atlanta has such a widespread, bold and like cultural forward population and, and, and like, you know, black population specifically, it felt like Atlanta was a very appropriate setting for this kind of story. So to get to um, experience it in that way from the inside out was was wonderful. Essentially, the city of Atlanta was your canvas or set design, I guess. What made you decide on the particular backdrops you chose? It was important to us to show a contrast between the, the colder, more tightly wound feeling of city life so that that could be, um, you know, in contrast with the, the open field and the sense of freedom that, that Keith finds at the character when he is finding himself, not finding release necessarily, but finding another element of himself that he can then move back to, to, to gird himself against the world. And uh, so we found um, a beautiful setting on Arabia Mountain in the field that Keith navigated with such grace. <laughs> uh, it's not easy to dance in that field, <laughs> but he did. He, oh, did, no. he did so, no, he so did so hard. well. Um, and it, I, you know, it's, the, it's the, the apex of the film, if you will. And we see Keith as he sees himself for a brief moment in time before we're brought back to quote unquote reality. Um, and so it was important to us to show those different locations for what they represent. Could I say one more thing? I wish you would. Yeah, okay. So I love working on this project, especially because it was so based around the city. Cause like me go going into adulthood, I've kind of grown up in this city. So the specific places where we've shot have been like certain areas where places that were very familiar to me. Like I used to, when I first came to Atlanta Ballet for the conservatory program, um, I would catch a bus from McDonough, Georgia, all the way to Atlanta at like 6 a.m. in the morning. And one of the places that we shot was a place that I used to get dropped off at. So there are so many different areas and things that were implemented in this video that were very personal to me. And like we shot my apartment, which was very personal and fun to do. I've always wanted to work on a project that showed the city in a great way um, with a great story. So this project really did that for me as an artist. And also just getting to work with Claudia again on such an intimate level was really great, especially for me right now. Like I'm trying to like choreograph as well, but like being with her and 
seeing how she works and how if something doesn't work, she'll play with it a little bit more or like scrap it. There's so many great things and so many great blessings that came with this whole process. So I'm very grateful. Ultimately, do you feel the message of the film is hopeful? Uh, Yes, especially right now during the time that we're in. I feel like right now in history, we're in a time where I feel like African-Americans and people of color are really seeing their strength and their power as a people, especially being in Atlanta, seeing all of the great, young, innovative African-Americans and people of color who are moving here for the arts and for politics and everything else. It is a really like vivid image of the hopefulness and freedom that we will hopefully get through this upcoming journey and the rest of life. Hopefully we all come together and really see the beauty in each other and not take that for granted. Atlanta Ballet dancer Keith Reeves with Atlanta Ballet choreographer-in-residence Claudia Schreier. The new short film Force of Habit can be streamed on YouTube. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. When you hear Appalachia, people of color are not in the images that come to mind. Afrolatia refers to people of African-American heritage who are native to or live in the Appalachians. Chris Aluka Berry is a photographer who has documented the life of Afrolatians, mostly in the southern part of the Appalachian Mountains, in an effort to bring awareness to their culture and dignity. His works are on view now on the Atlanta Beltline's West Side Trail, part of the regional edition of the National Public Art Exhibition known as The Fence. He joins us now via Zoom. Chris Aluka Berry, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you so much. I am uh, so happy to be here with you. It's just such a beautiful thing. It, it really has been a, uh, a struggle to, to get the word out there, to really change people's mindset of when they think of Appalachia and to really let them know what, what a diverse landscape it really is. So thank you so much. Well, you certainly are adding to that awareness. How did you learn about the Afrolatian people? You know, it's a really interesting story. Um, I was working as a photojournalist um, at the state newspaper in South Carolina, uh, which at one time was a, a really great newspaper. And I had a friend who lived in Georgia, and she was in college with a young lady um, who was an African-American woman. And she was telling my friend about her family in the North Georgia mountains and um, how they had been there for over 100 years. And I've been hiking and camping in the mountains ever since I was a teenager. And I just never saw much diversity while I was up there. So this really intrigued me. And I started trying to do some searches online and I just didn't find any visual representation. Everything that I found pretty much just showed white folks. So I was on assignment for Reuters and I was in Tocoa, Georgia, and I started asking around different folks. 
And then somehow the word got around to a woman named Marie Cochran, who's a, who's a great friend now. And she started the Afrolachian Artist Project. And she actually reached out to me. And she was the first person that told me about the word Afrolachia, um, which, was, which was actually invented by a gentleman by the name of Frank X. Walker in the 1990s. He was the uh, first African-American uh, poet laureate of uh, Kentucky. Marie and I, in 2016, she took me to a small town in Western North Carolina called Cullowee, North Carolina, and went to this little small church. There were maybe six people at the service, and uh, the folks just welcomed me in, and I started photographing, and the eldest woman there, a beautiful woman by the name of Louise Allen, Miss May Louise Allen. She was 93 years old and I photographed her with her sister and I made plans to come back. Um, in, in, I was gonna come back in three weeks to interview her and make more photos. And within that time, she passed away. And that's when I realized that not only is the Afrolachian culture something that a lot of people don't know about, but unfortunately it is a culture that is fading away a lot of communities are disappearing in the in the four and a half years I've been working on this project. Twelve people I photographed have passed away. And young people just aren't remaining. Yes, ma'am. It's the same for the white folks as well. You know, folks leave the rural areas to pursue jobs, better opportunities. There's a lot of different reasons why people leave the mountains. And, and then, of course, there's reasons why certain people stay. And the people that stay really are connected to the land. There's just so many fabulous stories I could share with you, Lois. Uh, stories of Black communities that were completely self-sufficient. Uh, stories of African-Americans owning entire mountainsides. Folks being so successful that they were hiring white folks to come do their laundry rather than vice versa. It is really a part of American history that I, I think a lot of people would really love to learn about. Sure. I read that you grew up in a biracial family in South Carolina. How did your background inform the way you photograph these families? Yeah, my father is black and my mother is white. And I look like a white guy. My, my brother looks like a black man. And we experienced a lot of racial persecution Um by a lot of different races all, all throughout my childhood. And when I became a photojournalist and I found the power of the photograph and I found how, how strong an image can be, I really started wanting to work on projects that kind of flip stereotypes. And so for me, this project is really kind of hopefully changing the stereotype that, that we have of Appalachia. Going into these mountains, I have met so many biracial families in the mountains. Because the African community is so small, and obviously you can't marry within your family, there's a lot of multiracial families. It's really a beautiful thing. But throughout the 20 years I've been a photojournalist, I've always sought to tell stories that kind of help expel those stereotypes when, when we're looking at race. Mm. PBS has a new documentary series called The Black Church. I spoke with the producer-director, Shayla Harris, about this series, and she said, the black church has been the center of the community that provided not just the spiritual home, but also a political space, economic space, 
and it was the first home of education. Does that compare with what you found gathering stories of the Afro-Latian people? Most definitely. Most definitely. You um, you hit the nail on the head. That is 100% true. The church is a place of refuge and, and has been I mean, for, for more than 100 years in, in the mountains. And, and most definitely. And that when I go into a new community, I always start at the church. And that has really been a there's a term that we use in photojournalism called a, a passport person, that person that you can build trust with that in turn can introduce you to people that they have trust with. And, and I'll tell you another thing. It's really amazed me the faith, just the faith that so many people have. There, there's a great song by a gospel singer. I believe her name is Ida Turner. And it says, Lord, Lord, don't move my mountain, but give me the strength to climb. And I have heard that song sung at different churches in the mountains. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's really inspirational, but definitely the, the church is a place of refuge. It's a place where people can come, where people can be free, where people can help each other. And of course, like you said, so many years ago, it was a place of education and it was a place where, where folks could feel safe. You mentioned that the church has been your passport to many of the people you photographed. Along with depicting daily life in the Appalachian Mountains, you also showcase some more somber experiences, such as funerals. How did you develop relationships and trust with these people that enabled you to capture those deeply personal moments? You know, I'll tell you the truth, that's really the hardest part of my job. Making photos is kind of the easy part, but it's it's building the trust and, and getting the access. And, you know, really, I think it it comes down to the golden rule, treating people the way you want to be treated, um, being upfront with people, telling them why you're there. And, you know, every community I go into, I'm, I'm real upfront. I'll, I'll say, hey, look, you know, unless you're from the mountains, you really don't know the diversity that, that is up here. And it's real important to me that, that that change, I have actually had people call me and invite me to photograph their father's funeral, their grandfather's funeral. Once people found out that what I was doing, because this is as much a, a, a photojournalism project, an art project, but it's really a project of preserving this history. And so people have invited me in. And I'll tell you, I've I have photographed so many funerals in my life, so many soldiers coming back from war and different things over the years to where I feel like we're, we're almost the closest to life when we're at a funeral. And it's a place where, where you can make really powerful images and it, it crosses all divides. It crosses all cultures. We can all relate to what it feels like to lose a loved one, you know? And I think it's those universal things that bring us together, but it takes time. And that's why I really enjoy spending multiple years working on a project rather than just, just flying in on a daily assignment and, and leaving. I feel like that, that is the key is building that trust. And then I share the photos, you know, after I photograph, 
I'll make small prints and I give them to the families. And, and I've had people reach out to me and, and want to use photos for the obituary and, and different things along those lines. And I've had people, you know, say, you know, you, you just captured the essence of my grandfather. And these are the last photos that we have of him. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very powerful. And I'm very thankful to have built that trust. I can see why. Please tell us about your photos along the Atlanta Belt Line's West Side Trail. On the fence, there are five photographs. They are all from North Georgia. Several of them are from a camp meeting. There's a camp meeting, Lois, in White County, Georgia, that has been taking place since 1886. It takes place on the same plot of land under the same arbor that was built by freed slaves. And their ancestors meet every year for a weekend of fellowship. And I will go up there and I set up my tent and I camp out. And um, several of the photos are from there. It, it truly is a sacred, sacred ground. And then there are other photos from a, a family, the Jenkins family in Cleveland, Georgia. Uh, one photo is of a Timmy Joe Jenkins who invited me to photograph his father's funeral and actually spent time with him and his mother the morning of. I went to their home and documented what that day was like. And then about a month later, Timmy Joe was cleaning out his uh, father's garage. And it was a very emotional time for him and uh one of the photos is from that as well. So yeah, it's, it's just a small, small glimpse. And, and even my website is a small glimpse. Can you talk a bit about the Fence Project and how you got involved? You know, the, the photography community here in Atlanta is really beautiful and people are always um, trying to help each other and look out for each other. And um, I did a talk at a, a group called ATL Photo Night uh, several years ago and showed some of the photos and made some contacts. And um, I had had some different people just encourage me to enter it, to submit my photos. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a big fan of contests and things like that, but I felt like I should do it. And uh, they were actually offering a reduced rate because of uh, COVID. So it wasn't very expensive to submit my photos. And it, it was really um, from other people telling me about it and, and encouraging me to do so. I'm curious, you talked about some of the prejudice you encountered. It sounded like a fair amount of it with your brother being dark-complected and your being light-complected. It sounds like an idyllic community that you have found in these towns of Afrolatia. Are these people not afraid of persecution? Do they not encounter it? You mentioned interracial marriages. I'm just curious. Well, you know, unfortunately, racism is, is still alive and well. I mean, just recently, there was a situation where a man used the, the N-word in a public place. And actually, in this town, the police force stood up for the African-American man that was being persecuted. A gentleman by the name of Cecil Dorsey, you know, told me stories of, you know, back in the 60s with the KKK showing up on his front doorsteps but he could tell who each man was by the shoes that he was wearing. And he came out on the front porch with his shotgun in his hand and said, hey, you guys might might kill me, but I'm going to take a couple of you 
couple of you down with me and and they left his house and and obviously that was a that was a good while ago but at the camp meeting there's these little makeshift tents that folks call them where people can stay out of the elements when they come to stay for the weekend and some of those tents were burned down several years ago and in the middle of doing the camp meeting there were guys driving by with rebel flags hanging out of their windows and one time someone came and carved kkk in the podium where the preacher preaches from you know and that's stuff that happened within the past 15 years so it it still happens but you know the the people that remain they love the land they are very strong. And, and I'll also say that I have seen beautiful relationships between the uh, white folks and black folks in the mountains. I mean, I almost feel like race relations are better in the mountains than they are here in Atlanta sometimes. Really? Yeah, it's really interesting because you have to lean on your neighbor. People have learned how to coexist in the mountains for so long because the mountains are so isolated. And I'll say this. The folks I have found up there, they identify as much with being Appalachian as they do with being African-American. In some church services, the preacher will be making references to Patsy Cline and, you know, just all of these different things that you would think are mainly a part of white culture. It's a beautiful hybrid, and, and that's what really makes it a unique part of American culture. Photographer Chris Aluka Berry a selection of his photographs of the Afrolatian people is part of the 2020 Georgia Fence Exhibition. It's on view on the Atlanta Beltline's West Side Trail through June. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Summer Evans is City Lights producer. Our engineer is Shelley Kennevy. And I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. You'll find archived interviews and shows on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to members-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.